Yeah, how, how about we jump in? Um, listeners, you are listening to Haunting the Studio, a podcast about horror and music and all things that orbit those two points across genres, styles, and nations. We're your guide to all things musically spooky. I'm Tyler, joined as ever by Andy and Jay, and we thought we'd switch things up a little bit because we're recording this not long after the previous episode you will have listened to, so um, we thought we'd uh, chat a little bit about what films we've watched lately instead of what music we've been listening to. Andy, you you watched <laughs> you you watched one of the happiest and brightest films Britain has ever produced recently. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that classic jaunt, Threads, <laughs> <laughs> about the luckiest people in the UK. <laughs> The, the luckiest, luckiest little sods in Birmingham. I think that's where it's set. Uh, no, I, I th- Sheffield. Oh no, I think you're right. I think it is Sheffield. Um, anyway, we can we can have people angry at us, yell at us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, it was a couple, a couple. Uh, it was about a week ago, actually. Yeah. If you don't know, it's um, it was made to be actually what would happen if you know the Cold War escalated. And things got uh, spicy, mm. and well, it's fucking miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just like yeah, just a whole lot of sad shit. Mm. Mm. I've always, people always go on about how this is one of the most disturbing stories, and it could come true. And I haven't watched it, but the vibe I get from watching bits and pieces of it is just that instead of disturbing, it's just extraordinarily fucking sad. Mm. That's the main thing, is, like, you know, it kind of follows, like, this one person whose life gets just, like, entirely interrupted and goes through, like, um, a period of about ten years. And she's, like, pregnant in the beginning and, like, kind of follows her, like, you know, where where she, like, gives birth and then, like, has a kid. It jumps forward, like, a huge kind of portion when kind of the remaining people uh like start trying to work the land and basically get worked to death trying to grow like the tiny tiniest amount of food that they can and then like yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know it's like i was talking to um to a friend of mine about the oh what was it surviving something but it was like the slogan started with these pamphlets that were kind of produced for um, government employees to say, "Hey, in the in the event of a nuclear bomb, here's what you should do," and you know, describes kind of really fucking sad shit, but just in a really blithe manner. Mm. And like, you, you know, we kind of think about it now, and like, what we understand of radiation, and actually what would happen, and it's just like, yeah, no one's gonna survive doing this. You mean I don't get to be a based poggers Fallout Lone Wanderer? <laughs> I actually much. just die of radiation poisoning, like, five years later? If you don't die of a disease well before then. Oh, okay. Well, it depends how long the lone survivors can ration out the medicine they find. But yeah, we, um, me and my friend were talking about that, and you know, it kind of made me think about threads, and it's like, well, that was kind of the... Yeah, it was Protect and Survive. But it made me think about, like, Threads, and it's like, oh, maybe I should watch that. Where can I get it from? It's it's on the Internet Archive. 
Hell yeah. You can see it for free. Yeah. Nice. Uh, So so I watched that. And apart from that, I've been watching uh, Rick and Morty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Season six. I like, you know, you know, hadn't watched it. So I fucking, oh, in season five, I hadn't even finished that. So I just kind of like binged. You you can talk face to face, you know, level with my 14 year old brother. Yes. You'll you'll be able to relate to the teens. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's a good show. It's, I like that they don't have to censor all the swear words now. Well, that's good. Because that was fucking annoying. I don't think... I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I don't think I've watched it since, like, season two. I have watched it. I'm not, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say, like, I'm too cultured for that, but I, I don't think I've followed it very closely for a long time now. I still think of it as a fairly new show as well. So when you said season six, I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> I feel the hand of death on my shoulder. Ugh. What about you, Jay? What have you been watching? I've been watching some very bright and cheery films recently. I recently rewatched Climax by Gaspar Noé. Nice. Really setting the tone for this episode. <laughs> I then watched the remake of Funny Games by Michael Michael Haneke. Michael Michael Haneke. Some Austrian guy. Mister Haneke. Mister Mister Sir Mister Sadman. Mm. Yeah, um, that, that's good. Oh, that, that one's that's the it's got uh, Naomi Watts in it, yep. right? Yeah, Naomi Watts and Tim Roth. And, that's it. Yeah. Oh, incredible performances in that stunning, stunning film. Also, one of the most unpleasant and uncomfortable films that I've seen in quite some time. And I say that after watching Climax. So. <laughs> yeah, mm. that, that's the film that introduced me to Naked City. Yeah, they've got. Um, two tracks from the early days i think some of their eps just spliced together in the opening credits and yeah tracks when when they were uh, working with yamantanka ai from um hanatarash the so danger music yeah yeah that's right yeah. yeah yeah drove a, f- a fucking bulldozer through a club hell yeah <laughs> and did like twenty thousand dollars worth of damages there's no like surviving recording but there are photos and they look amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> And I rounded out the miserable movie experience by watching both Silent Hill movies. Oh, well, that's, well, that's, ob- that's obviously the worst of them all. Yeah, but that's miserable yeah. for a different reason. Yeah, they... Oh, but were, were, they, were they that bad, or were they just, like, missing the point and they... also boring? I remember the second one being quite bad. The first one, you could tell there was a lot of effort to replicate the aesthetic of the game that it was based on. They did not succeed. The second one is, oh, trying to trying to be positive here. Um, there were two shots that were almost kind of interesting, and they had a monster which could have been cool if it was developed or had any sort of weight to it. And um, it's only ninety minutes, so it went by pretty quickly. Well, that's always good. Hmm. There's a there's something to be said for films that know when to keep it short. Yeah, I keep wish they short and sweet. I wish they had that foresight before they made the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it falls on me then. Yeah, I I've watched a bit of a mixed bag of things lately. I I watched Rogue One finally and didn't like it, uh-huh. which uh, I'm sure is going to annoy people because that's meant to be the good one. But if that's the good one, then I'm sorry. What Dan, is it? It's, it's a, a Star, Star Wars, Wars movie. movie. Oh. A recent one. What do you mean it's meant to be the good one? It's meant to... Of the, like, 
like standalone Star Wars yeah, films. Of the like the the new Star Wars that that, yeah. that started with um Force Awakens. Yeah, Force Awakens. It's meant to be one of the good ones and I uh, I just don't think this new Star Wars is for me personally. Why I feel like um George Lucas speaking to you directly here. You really missed this opportunity to call the Jedi's the Force kin. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? That is a missed opportunity. I might have enjoyed Rogue One a bit more if they were the Force Ken. Yeah, they cut that though. <laughs> <laughs> I also uh, I watched um, both Rob Zombie Halloween films. Oh, oh God! Why? Yeah, um, the first one not good. Not a fan of it. Oh, the absolutely. The second awful. one is a weird film. If we were a film podcast, I, there would probably be enough material there for me to go really in, in, in deep hmm. into into that one. I don't necessarily think it's a good film. It's a much more interesting film, personally. But the first of those two films was just... Mm. Yeah, it was, it was Rob Zombie trying to do his, like, white trash psychobilly freak-out type stuff with all of the... All of the violence and madness of a Texas Chainsaw film, but the problem is he was making a Halloween film, so none of it lands. And there are scenes that are just... There are scenes and lines and obvious directorial and writing choices that that fall on Rob Zombie's plate in the end that um, are pretty unnecessary. Yep, to say the least. Thinking of some of those scenes in the mental hospital. Yes, um, Which I feel like, so, so kind of my thought about it was that I think Rob Zombie really appreciates that horror films can be used to tell the kinds of stories that we don't want to hear but kind of need to. And that's kind of commendable in a way, but also it's like, you know, sometimes you kind of look at a film and you're looking at the way it's described and you see the word gritty mm. and it's like, okay, it's unpleasant to watch and for me when a film says gritty it's unpleasant to watch and there's no benefit to that because i've never seen a film that's been described as gritty that i felt like there was some poignancy personally i mean i would describe the first texas chainsaw that way maybe urban gritty is a different what do you kind mean of thing. What, do you, what do you mean by urban gritty because it's like you know uh like uncut gems gets that's one of the like more recent kind of films that gets the gritty label. I don't know if I've seen that personally. I just didn't feel like. Uh... We can talk about this off off. Mic. Yeah, yeah. I, I <laughs> quite I quite liked urban um, urban gems, uncut gems. So um, we I can did... have that argument elsewhere. Wait, I have, I did haven't... you not just say that you hadn't seen it? No. Yeah, what I did think you, say you did. You... Did I say I hadn't seen it? You you said you weren't sure if you had seen it or something. Oh, okay. Well, I have seen Uncut Gems. Uh, no, no, I, I meant... When I said I haven't seen that, I mean I haven't seen Uncut Gems described as being gritty. Yeah. Following, yep. Yeah. I haven't seen the film either, but I have a soft spot for Adam Sandler comedy, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're in, for, you're in for a treat. Awesome. The other thing that I've been watching is that I have been dipping into some 40s and 50s cinema. Um, I watched High Noon. Slaps. I watched In a Lonely Place. Slaps. I watched Brute Force. Slaps. And I watched My Darling Clementine. Slaps. All four of them. 
it was it was hit after hit after hit, and I I wasn't really picking them because they were well known. I just yeah. Like, I was gonna say I've heard of one of those, and it was because I was in the room when you watched it. <laughs> well, they're all like, they're very Criterion Collection core. Oh uh, yeah. So they definitely have an audience, probably a somewhat insufferable audience, but an audience nonetheless these days. I definitely don't think they're all, all with the possible exception of my darling Clementine. I don't think they're all like perfect films. Brute Force especially, I think, had some some pretty mixed moments and like writing and directorial choices. I'm I'm especially thinking of all of the uh, flashback sequences in Brute Force where we find out that like none of these guys who went to prison went were, were really bad guys after all. Maybe they didn't deserve to be there, and it just kind of felt kind of unnecessary. Mm. Like we can respect these guys' humanity and see that they don't deserve to be treated like shit, even if they are, like, petty criminals. Or even if they're serious criminals. Mm. But it's still pretty fucking good. And the ending sequence where the prison stages, the prisoners stage their uprising goes so hard. Hell yeah. They go so fucking hard. Yeah, High Noon and My Darling Clementine have both, like, pelled me on old-fashioned westerns. I, I think I could really get into them. Granted, that's me entering with two of the, like, best of the... <laughs> two of the best and most well-known westerns of their era. Probably not as well-known these days as the likes of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, or those kind of, like, 60s westerns, but from, like, the 40s and 50s, two of the most well-known... Probably two of the most well-known black-and-white westerns. And given that my experience with westerns before that was, like, Tombstone, the 90s film and Tremors, or Tremors 4, whichever one is a western. I think it might be Tremors 4. I didn't have, like, much of a background in the classic era of westerns when I went into them. Hmm. But all, all of those, all those 40s and 50s films I've been watching recently have all been pretty good. Um, and I'm not usually one, I mean, period dramas I can get behind, at least if they're kind of like war dramas. Um, it's, it's, it's a very boy thing to do but so be it but dramas generally aren't usually my thing so in a lonely place especially which is like a uh like a noir murder thriller that is mostly just about inter i mean all all kind of thrillers are mostly about interpersonal relationships but that one especially is mostly a drama about a failing like a successful and then failing relationship <laughs> which is not usually my thing really that much at all so you know, I was quite pleased when I watched it and was like, hey, this fucking rules. So yeah, it seems to have fallen on me to, to pick things up a little bit with my, my my recent viewings, so hopefully I've done that. Hey, Rick and Morty's, like, not... Yeah, I suppose so. But, but the audience shit. might not have a high enough IQ to really follow along. I don't think I have a high enough IQ to follow along either. Yeah, exactly. So today we are moving on with our little uh, multi-parter on clipping with the second of their Diptych of Horrorcore albums, Visions of Bodies Being Burned. Uh, we last time kind of covered the basics with clipping and with their production stuff, so we'll have like a tiny bit of production stuff to talk about now, but not very much, so we're not really front-loading this one. And when it comes to like the features and the people who worked on like one track or 
you know, a track that has kind of like other credits, we'll kind of just bring those up as they come along rather than front-loading it. There weren't any lineup changes in the band. Clipping have been the three core members of Clipping throughout. And Steve Kaplan returned behind the boards. Um, you'll recall that he was one of the two main mixer masterers on the previous album. So we have part of the like main production team coming back once more for this one. He was joined this time by a guy named Richard Becker, uh, who runs a studio called Studio Clunk in Berlin. He was on board for mastering, and he had well over 500 credits. A lot of them German, so I didn't recognize a huge number of them. And they weren't like old school German power metal bands, so I, I wasn't I wasn't particularly well like well placed to recognize them. Mm. They may well be some quite well known in like the European scene, but I I just I didn't pick up on them. And I wasn't like I went through every single credit. So there might be a couple more famous credits outside of Germany in there as well. But the point being that we've got like another industry guy here with well north of five hundred credits to his name. Besides that, most of the credits on this album are people who worked on, like, one track here and there. So we'll kind of get to those as the tracks come up, rather than putting it all in now, as I said just a few moments ago. And especially, I want to highlight the final track on the album, Secret Secret, Secret Piece. Place. Oh, well, <laughs> hush my mouth, I'm a fake fan. You're thinking of Bjerk. No, that's Hidden Place. <laughs> Who's the fake fan now? I'm I'm thinking of Swans. No, that's Secret Friends. <laughs> um, Secret Piece has a ton of credits on it. Like, I think close to a dozen credits on it when you factor in the band as well. So when when we get to talking about kind of the end of the album, which I presume will be kind of towards the end of the episode, I will give us our many, many credits that wind up on Secret Piece. And Secret Piece is a really interesting track itself, compositionally, so... Mm. Um, but we'll get there when we get to there. To kind of kick things off, one thing I felt with this album, compared to the last one, is that it does feel, I don't know, a little bit tighter, maybe, than the previous album, at least for me when I was listening to it. That might be the fact that the closing track isn't 18 minutes long. <laughs> it really could just be that. <laughs> But I, I felt that it was a little bit tighter. Its runtime was used maybe a little bit better. And the peaks of this album, for me, matched or maybe in a few places, one or two tracks I'm thinking of in particular, surpassed the peaks on the previous album. So this album, I'm going to get out there right at the start. I liked this one very slightly, like a point one in score out of ten more than the previous one. Yeah. I, w I was going to start off by saying that, you know, usually when you get, you know, bands and they do uh, kind of like double album in this way, you know, thinking about like Swan's, uh, like the sister albums, um, Greed and Holy Money, uh, you know, and other such double albums, is you kind of get one that seems to be more of like a. The second one, like, polishes the rough edges of the first one. Uh, but for, for this it's they're equally as good and they're equally as amazing i was actually a little bit worried going into this album because yeah no i was i was a bit worried going into this album that it would end up as a glorified b-sides record almost 
Um, yeah, in a similar way that we mentioned Greed and Holy Money, going into this, I was thinking of Radiohead's Kid A yeah, and Amnesia. That was the other I struggled to remember what the other example I was going to use was. It just got to be that one. <laughs> mm. I think mostly because with every album, they have changed things up quite significantly. And this is a continuation of a style that they were already doing. Part of me was thinking their existed addiction to blood was so good, I'm not really sure what they could have added to it. Then looking through the track list, the first single they released for the album Say The Name has a different mix for the single that was released, it's around three minutes, and the version that ends up on the album, it's around five minutes. And I think the single mix is a little bit better. It flows a little bit nicer with the removal of the bridge section, I suppose. Um, the noise section at the end is very noisy, very clattery, but not nearly as weighty as the single mix. Looking through the track list as well, I noticed that there is they, they included Body for the Pile, which was originally released on an Adult Swim noise compilation in 2016. I don't know why that's a thing. I'm glad it exists, but... <laughs> that sort of gave me the impression that they may just be... They might be throwing together kind of uh, an off-cuts Yeah, release. well, like the Swans albums and like the Radiohead albums... These two albums were recorded at the same time, and not so much with Holy Money, but more with Amnesiac. I do feel like a lot of the more esoteric, wayward cuts ended up on that album, and it feels a little bit more obtuse, it feels a little bit more experimental, I suppose, but it also doesn't flow nearly as nicely as a cohesive album as the album that precedes that. And in listening to the album, I'm quite happy to admit that I was very wrong. Uh, this album rules. It expands on a lot of the groundwork that they laid for Addiction to Blood. I don't think I was surprised listening through bodies, uh, Visions of Bodies Being Burned, having heard the previous album. There isn't any... There aren't any ideas that come out of left field that aren't really present in some capacity on the previous album. There aren't any musical ideas which are well there's enlacing i suppose but we'll get to that when we get to that there's not too much that's too far apart from what they were doing in the previous album it does feel like these two albums are one unit for me almost when you're looking at the vinyl pressing of it the labeling also reflects that these two albums are supposed to be considered as one cohesive listening experience both albums are double LPs, so you have sides A, B, and C, D on the first album. You have sides E, F, G, H for Visions of Bodies Being Burned. Mm. You get that with albums sometimes. You, it's not always the case that you have an album that's like released as one cohesive package. Sometimes you get, like with our kind of demo episode, Iron Maiden's Killers, which I think you can listen to with the debut Iron Maiden together as one package but killers a lot of people treat as just kind of like an off cuts and b-sides album i think that's unfair i think killers is a great album and then you have kind of the other end of the spectrum is an album like halloween's keeper of the seven keys parts one and two where from really early in the process it's like this is a two-parter 
we're conceptualizing it as a two-parter we're working on it as a two-parter and as i understand it with this this kind of was one of those cases where you had an album that over the process of creating there existed an addiction to blood became two albums Mm. they said on the release of this album that they just had so much material from the recording sessions and the production sessions i suppose for addiction to blood that it morphed into a amorphous double album when addiction to blood came out it was a standalone piece effectively that was the album and that was what you get so a year later seeing say the name pop out with the announcement of a whole other album attached to it was a big surprise a very welcome surprise but yeah no i just entered i i ended my (laughs) sentence on a on a conjunction and you're gonna have to deal with that i'm not editing this shit it's all right churchill would forgive you (laughs) now if you had have ended on a preposition yeah that's when the trouble starts to start burrowing into the track list like, one thing I will say is that when I say that the peaks kind of surpass to a, to a tiny degree the peaks on the previous album, there are more tracks that stuck with me mm-hmm. on their existed addiction to blood than was the case on um, Visions of Bodies Being Burned. Like, with Visions of Bodies Being Burned, 96 Neve Campbell, love that track, really awesome. stucks with me. I really like the interlude before it, Witchboard, mm-hmm. um, which is a nice little, like... I'm not sure if it is a sample from somewhere or if they just recorded it in studio because you could quite easily kind of make an interlude that sounds like that, like it came off of, Mm. like it's a sample from something. But that, you know, oh, he is here? He is here? What does that mean? (sighs) And that, like, leads into the main beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Check the Lock, I fucking love. I mm. think that's probably close to my favourite on this album, mm. I think I'd be willing to say. And the one that comes right after it, Looking Like Meat, I really like Horror's sample, not sample, Horror's um, feature on this. I mean, I'm kind of predisposed to like it because I have a little bit of experience with horror. Or if, if you're going, if you never heard of horror and you're going out and looking for them, H O nine nine O eight O nine is how it's spelt. For the, for the listeners out there. So, mm. you're welcome. I've saved you a lot of time if you're about to go and look that up. <laughs> it's, it's like, I uh, uh, went to, to, to a record shop once and asked if they had any shoe-shoe. And I was about to tell them how it was spelled, and the guy was like, uh, I think I know how to spell it. It's like, oh, X-I-U, X-I-U. He's like, oh, well, okay then. <laughs> <laughs> but 96 Neve Campbell... As I understand it, it went through some name changes. Like, they had, they considered 78 Jamie Lee Curtis as a name, and 84 uh, Heather Longenkamp as a name. So, 78 Jamie Lee Curtis, or Lee Curtis, was it? Yeah. Is a reference to Halloween, obviously. Yeah. What's the, and, and I'm pretty sure 96 Neve Campbell is a reference to Scream. Scream, yeah. What's the... 84 Heather Longenkamp, um, she is... The, the uh, lead from um, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original one. Ah, oh, choice. Yeah, so they had kind of like the same naming convention, but with different slashes, and then they kind of settled on when when David Diggs came in and started doing the actual like writing out the lyrics for it. Ninety six Neve Campbell just kind of naturally came 
as yeah, this is this is what fits. This is what what we're gonna call it. Mm. Yeah, which make makes sense that also they were considering those names because it, it's it fits the uh, like scream queen kind of archetype. Yeah, and like calling it seventy eight Jamie Lee Curtis would make sense because like Jamie Lee Curtis is kind of like the OG scream queen, or you know the kind of the the prom queen among scream queens. Yeah, as it were. <laughs> mm. Um, but that, uh, that song, um, it's the one that, like, they, they talk a bit on both albums about how, like, here are a collection of, kind of, grisly slasher horror stories for you to kind of, like, chew on. 96 and Eve Campbell is one of the ones that feels the most, for me, like I'm listening to a slasher. Mm. See, I get that, uh, as well with, like, Say the Name. Mm. And you know it's it's, it's Candyman. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, look into the mirror and say it again. And you say the name. The hook gon' be what it is. The hands off. The retribution for what you took from the man. Got blood on the rust. God bless the red earth. The dead man walks the tongue bridge. A bridge. The time space. The boot. The concrete. The project undone. They cute um, the hook gonna be what it is. The hands off. Hell yeah! You have all the sample, or the you have the sample of bees coming in during the bridge section as well. It adds another degree of cohesiveness between the two albums to have all of these cinematic um, references to horror baked into the tracks as deeply as they are. Yeah, it's mm. it's something we talked about last time with you know uh, the their like uh, soundtrack work. Is how do you how do you incorporate the visual elements and the you know thematic mm. you know you know the the uh, symbolism and imagery into a sound based medium and I guess I have always kind of thought of Candyman as being more on the supernatural side but then if we're also talking about like Nightmare on the Street I guess I guess I don't really have a leg or a hook in this case to stand on. I think it was a peg leg traditionally among pirates. The no, hook was for the hand. No, I'm going metal only. Hook leg. Hook leg. Peg arm. Yeah. <laughs> you no, are, you don't getting... don't even get me started on where the eye patch goes. Yeah, you you only get you you get blunt object from my from my arm replacement. Not to throw everything off track. But also fuck whatever you were thinking about before. <laughs> yeah, we're we're a alternative pirate. Um, physiognomy podcast now. Uh, I look down for one second and suddenly I'm on a different show. Yeah, I know. Oops. Um, <laughs> drawing, drawing back on topic, I, I, I really fucking love the features on the last one. The chat especially, great feature. And this one, features still quite good. With the exception of the horror feature, I don't know if they quite stand out as much this time around i think with neve campbell yeah i reckon cam and china do an amazing job yeah you know what actually fuck me i was kind of wrong on that yeah yeah they they absolutely like sell it mm. you know this bitch boss yeah i'm just trying to think if there is an analogous track in the previous album where i don't know i, I think of haunting where you have she's the victim in that or things are happening to her and in 96 Neve Campbell they are pushing back against that mm. 
I'm just not entirely sure the best how the the best way to phrase that is. Well, that's that's like a salient point to make because like one thing with check one thing with choosing Scream is that Scream itself is a is a you know a, a kind of postmodern deconstruction of the slasher. It makes sense to in a track that kind of flips the kind of Scream Queen passive lone survivor thing on its head to then go with a lone survivor whose role in the film that she's in is to subvert the tropes of the genre that the film is subverting the tropes of. Mm. I guess, like, now that I'm really thinking about it, it might just be, like, a number, a, a, a quantity over over quality thing here because like I when I think of there existed an addiction to blood I think of like maybe three or four features whereas when I think of visions of bodies being burned the two features that really stand out for me are the Cam and China feature on 96 Neve Campbell and the horror feature on looking like meat and I guess I guess sickness on body for the pile as well yeah well a lot of the features this time around are not guest rappers as they were in the previous record but people who are working with the sound and adding to it so you have christopher flieger on the intro and i think that's a really lovely comparison point between the not a comparison point but a decent statement of intent the different introductions and how they set up how they set up the atmosphere of the records they're from uh greg stewart adds to invocation with the what's the name of the ghost technology like emp or something like that EMP. Yeah, Greg Stewart presumably sources the EMP sounds on Invocation. Mm. I think I'm not entirely sure what Michael Esposito or Sickness necessarily added to Body for the Pile specifically, but those two tracks in particular are a lot gnarlier than a lot of what we see on There Existed an Addiction to Blood, and I feel like overall this album is a lot more... I don't want to say impenetrable, a lot more abrasive, a lot more uncomfortable to listen to. I think of An Addiction to Blood, and it is bangers all the way through, basically, and the tracks here don't stand out as much on their own, because they're a lot more spacious, they're a lot more minimalistic and subtle in certain ways. With this one, you know, you start off with these like really kind of you know cinematic storytelling pieces and then you get senses as it goes along that things are falling apart you know which track is it that you highlighted it when we were listening to it together a little while back make them dead yeah yeah with the like love that really it's not quite harsh noise per se but a quite damn close it's a quite close Sorry, it's a quite harsh space noise instrumental going on. Mm. Yeah. And then you get the... It leads in with the make them, and then you get the voices that, you know... The really ghostly choral type yeah, vocals. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Ghostly. Not angelic at all. Make them... Walk forward with eyes closed. Don't them say they believe us. They brought their Bibles, did they dare to see? Make them step up to the cliff so they can count the blessed. 
Only the wicked men fall to their death. Not demonic. No, they're so desaturated and mm. bereft of life. Yeah, they're like phantom voices. Mm. You know. Yeah, they're spectral. Yeah. Oh, it's so fucking good. Even with the elements of noise that are on Make Them Dead, they're reasonably subtle. Not subtle, but they're not super obtuse or in your face. I could compare them to Merzbau or The Body, which is incredibly intense, incredibly visceral. But even comparing the noise feature on Make Them Dead to the noise section at the end of Lamala or Dina from the previous record, or the start of Attunement, those are a lot more confrontational and in your face whereas it feels like a lot of this album is a lot more almost languid it's interesting you bring up um Mersbauer, because i'm pretty sure it's either on this album or the previous one one of the two we do actually have a Mersbauer collaborator cropping up in the as do you mean Mersbauer shows up or someone who's collaborated someone who's worked with Mersbauer shows up i want to say that would be attunement i'm gonna i'm gonna fact check that yeah i didn't, I didn't write or, down who exactly it was but we do have like a connection there feels like it's very easy to get connections to mersbau you could start up a concrete mixer and say oh this was actually sampled on venereology <laughs> one thing that i find interesting with this album is and, and to and with the last one as well but i, I think with the final track it, it pops out to me but it's not just on that is some of the uh, instrumental choices that are made here, like there's, there are definitely instruments that I don't normally associate with, especially industrial, that crop up here, like there's some harp work showing up in a couple tracks, there's some cello work popping up in a couple tracks, and when I think of something as harsh and mechanical uh, as industrial, which is truly a genre that lives up to its name, it's not really that kind of, you know, orchestral instrumentation that I, I would normally think of, but it, it's worked in quite well here. I mean, this, especially on the track we just mentioned just before, whose name has currently escaped me, um, especially on Make Them Dead, with the, you know, quite ghostly choral work being worked in with this quite abrasive sort of industrial soundscape. There is, like... It's definitely deliberate, is the thing. Like, it's very much a deliberate choice yeah, that is being made here. It feels very organic, especially compared to... It's notable compared to the last record. It is even more notable and more pronounced when compared to Splendor and Misery and Clipping. Those feel a lot more synthetic and... I don't want to say inorganic, because that's not really a good descriptive way for the, a good way of describing it. Yeah, it's not like the it's not like the band is going like, "Hey, wouldn't it be crazy if we just put in a a really pleasant instrument with this harsh soundscape?" It's a much mm. more like deliberate and thought out process than that. I think also this is a diversion, but I, I think I I realized what it is between the two albums that I that I kind of detect where I, I kind of think that they're, they're on a slightly different level to one another. The first album is the one that I'm going to put on more often. It has more tracks on it that I, ju I just enjoy listening to. This album, like, really speaks to the art nerd in me. A like, a lot more. Hmm. There are a lot more tracks on here that I have, like, 
I don't think I'm going to listen to as much, but if I'm in a very particular mood, are going to be absolutely perfect. I think that's the the kind of difference between the two. They're kind of slightly different levels, maybe not like a different score per se, but the slightly different kind of like moods and levels that I detect between these there's, two. There's definitely a different mood or a different atmosphere that you would want to be listening to these two albums because they are aiming for different mouthfeels. There's a better way of describing that. I um, really want to keep that in. Okay. <laughs> um, a lot of the tracks are a lot more on a lot of the tracks on visions of bodies being burned are a lot more ambient i don't think there's an equivalent track to something like eaten alive off um visions of bodies being burned which is not nearly as abrasive it's probably the most gentle track out of these two albums but it's still very disorienting it sounds like you put a microphone in the middle of a kitchen and i just pulling all the stuff off the walls and banging the pots and pans around it's a different type of noise it's not nearly as abrasive it's for that track in particular not nearly as abrasive or as confrontational it still feels quite disorienting when you're listening to it and i feel like throughout visions of bodies being burned they managed to do quite a lot more with quite a lot less than they were doing on their previous record yeah no that that is a good way of of putting it there's the ambience that's on a lot of these tracks recurs a lot more on this album than is the case on there existed an addiction to blood if you compare check the locks with make them dead like that there's a very different atmosphere but on a lot of tracks on here the atmosphere is presented in a very similar way than on There Existed an Addiction to Blood, where there's quite a bit of variation between the tracks. Both of them, when you look at them as cohesive holes, are very much putting you in a certain mood, very much have a, a certain atmosphere to them. But when you kind of get into the nitty-gritty and you look at it on a track-to-track-to-track basis, I think this album wins out a little bit in terms of like creating a mood that's just and an atmosphere that's just ever present it definitely feels like it hits a little bit harder than addiction to blood i'm thinking of she bad in particular where it is very spacious it's very empty for the most part you have these little chitterings around the mix but it's mostly quite sparse and then when the vocals come in they are so percussive and so loud because of the contrast between those more spacious more ambient leaning sections yeah so when when we're taking like these two albums like it feels like a disservice to consider them as being two albums and like compare this album to the next one or to the you know the last album to this one because it doesn't fit like that you know, you get the at the very start of the album. Like, we were talking about this last episode that uh, part of the uh, vinyl release was, you know, th- this could be played at a club. And you, you really do get that at the start of this album with... Say the Name. Say the Name. 96. Which has that outro section, and they were hugely inspired by Closer by Nine Inch Nails. Mm. That it just has this, you know, really long outro section that's great, and you get still with you know the interlude of witchboard going into neve 
and you you know you kind of get the like there's this much shorter section at the beginning compared to you know where it ends up and how long it just kind of drags out this but it's not dragging because if you think of it the two albums together it has to evolve in some way Mm. and the way that it does is masterfully done yeah i think that's a fair point this isn't like this isn't the same as taking i don't know two abba albums and comparing them where like they're they're different works produced in different contexts or i mean like abba i just pulled a random famous artist out out of the hat another scary Um, artist another (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah another terrifying artist this isn't like pulling you know two albums by however many bands that were produced next to each other but weren't produced as a single cohesive project or weren't produced in the same sessions as each other it, it, it is worth like bearing in mind when discussing these two albums throughout that like these were produced in in largely the same sessions they were produced as part of one cohesive project they're produced with very similar themes running throughout the whole lot they're produced with a fairly similar atmosphere running throughout the whole lot they are like you're right they are they should be considered as one project when you're thinking about them and i think like maybe we have been like looking at the variation of small difference so far not that that's necessarily a bad thing i mean like we're a music nerd podcast that's kind of what people are listening in for yeah no that that is worth keeping in mind i mean especially because you know the last album the the last before our our little kind of month-long dive into clipping um we were looking at death and they're a band that's so well renowned for the degree to which they changed between albums and the level of evolution Evolution. yeah which is not to say that like clipping doesn't evolve they've evolved quite especially especially in terms of uh the framing of their albums evolved quite a bit between them but um i'm I'm just saying that because we did talk a bit about like the the degree of difference between between like scream bloody gore and then by the time you get to sound of perseverance you know that definitely came up when we were talking about it i'm champing at the bit to talk about the last track so can we talk about the last track oh my gosh yes yeah go for it okay (laughs) i fucking loved secret peace in terms of just like a, a single idea it's my favourite idea on both of these albums by a huge margin. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. One, I'm a fan of their mixture of, like, field recording, but it isn't just field recording by itself. There's actual instrumental work going on here that they're working into the field recording. I love how they do it. I love the fact that this track is a collaboration between so many different people, and they pull it all together. Field recordings from different places and different contexts all of these different instrumentalists and, and, and producers and whatnot. And this all comes together in this, compared to Piano Burning, quite short track, mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> that has, oh, this eeriness to it. Secret Piece was originally a Yoko Ono composition, wasn't it? Yes. So this is the, that's kind of the thing that ties this with the end of the previous album, is they've, bo- they've chosen in both cases to take a prior composition and produce their own mm. version of it. Um, but it's not just them producing it this time. They have how many guest features on this one? Oh, uh, I mean, I've got a, I've got the list written down here. Give me a second. Fifteen. Fifteen different <laughs> people outside the band themselves worked on this. So oh, they, oh, outside. 
Fuck. Yeah, not including oh, wow. clipping well, themselves. So who ends up who ended up contributing to Secret Peace? So a lot of these there there's a couple names here that only appear between these two albums only appear on Secret Peace. In terms of what we have here, we have shallow and sultry work from Shannon A. Kennedy. I looked into what a sultry is. It's like a it's like a, a predecessor to a lot of the string instruments we have today. Particularly it's one of those like bored string instruments that you kind of play sitting down. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what it was, so I, I had to look it up. Like a koto sort of. Yeah, similar to that. We have double bass work from Joe Lester, Chikudi Hodge, who was the in the previous episode, the guy that I couldn't figure out. I, c- I couldn't figure out what his credits were. Mm-hmm. I, I I had a bit of trouble with that. He returns here on drums. Jonathan Borges, who's only listed as being on electronics, so I don't necessarily know exactly what that means. He flipped the light switch on and off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we have Christopher Flieger returning. Hell um, yeah. He worked with the band to produce the field recordings that comprise kind of the basis of this track. John W. Snyder on piano. It also has Casey Anderson on the alto saxophone. David Rothbaum on bass, Kaylee Drain on more cello, so we have more than one <laughs> cellist on this, Ted Burns on drums, so more than one drummer on this, Mary Claire Rizitwa, I think it is, on flute, uh, Greg Stewart on glockenspiel and the marimba, Kirsten Carey on guitar, and Hal Rosenfeld on vibraphone. Hell yeah. All contributing to this. I dramatically threw for the listeners. I dramatically threw the book away after I finished that. It was very dramatic. It's a shame that no one could see that. Thank you. So yeah, we have like this big group of people who are probably not working like all in a single session together as like a band, but a big group of people who are collaborating to produce this track. And I didn't catch some of the other places that it was recorded at, but. The, the basis of the track is these dawn recordings, some of which took more than a week of going out every morning just to make sure you got like the right sample of mostly birdsong at various famous murder sites. I didn't catch what most of them were, partly because one of the articles that I was reading uh, was paywalled. <laughs> Ah, yeah. So I read like the first two paragraphs, and it mentioned one of them, but it's the one that everywhere else mentioned as well. Um, The most famous, I would imagine, is the site of the Black Dahlia murder, from which the band gets its name, and which has served as the inspiration for countless metal bands to produce their nice spooky track. That context makes this already quite eerie field recording and mostly fairly soft instrumental track and it takes it and it just pushes it up that little extra level which is something this band seems to be really fucking good is taking what is already a really effective piece and just doing something that pushes it up that that ratchets up the level of tension or ratchets up the level of artistry just that little bit more every time and this track like Coming at the end of the album, it's a much quieter piece. It's kind of the piece that you, you level off, you glide, 
out of an album that's had a lot of much harsher instrumental instrumental passages and in the knowledge of where these recordings came from it just like it almost puts a chill up your spot i think i had the reaction to this that you had to piano burning mm. it just puts like that chill up your spine like these two albums that are obsessed with the nature of violence and at the very end of it you have arguably the most violent thing to be touched on by the album and what you get is this placid multi-part instrumental and field recording of primarily bird song and dawn calm and it's so fucking eerie mm. yeah yeah, there was something that you said with the mastery of clipping comes in is there are so many so many bands and that you listen to, so many albums that you think, okay, they did this the next step would have been this but you can never get that with clipping because they already did it you know, there is like what next step could there possibly be they oh. kill someone and then feel re- <laughs> and then feel recorded that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's they it's... preempt you by going to their own murder site <laughs> doing field recording. You know, it, it's there's just like so much stuff you listen to and you think like this could have been improved in this way. This is what could have been done differently that I think would have made the experience would have made the you know like instrumentation would have been better if they had have used this instrument you know they could have done something but clipping it just doesn't exist (laughs) you know (laughs) it's what's the next step is inconceivable (laughs) fight me (laughs) i'm not gonna disagree with that (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i i don't know if i'm gonna put clipping in my like listen to all the time playlist at least not from these two albums because both of them do have a level of kind of I mean, we talked about it last time a level of kind of art school kid to it I, I put them in a similar category to like crystal castles where I, i'm probably not going to be in the mood to listen to it all the time and that is my kind of like my critique that's not a critique really is that like this isn't really music for all the time to me like, uh, I, I've been, like, driving around a bit, getting stuff done, because we're going on a trip soon, and I've just been kind of, like, I'm having all of the things that I've been putting off um, have kind of stacked up. So I've been doing a lot of chores and stuff, and I've been listening to these albums, and they're kind of not really driving music for me. I, there's a lot of stuff that I would kind of put on before this when it comes to driving music, and driving, driving music is kind of my, like, you know, good mood music for mm. me. Um, this is kind of drive into the bridge. Yeah, th- this music. is this is my this is my sit looking over, looking over the bay at the peninsula late at night with a cigarette. Music. <laughs> you don't even smoke. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I like to listen to this every time I walk through the bus hub past the police station. <laughs> Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> Take that, pigs. Yeah, fuck twelve. Yeah, I, I think. I think that kind of like that that uses up the last of my kind of stored mana in terms of <laughs> in terms of this album. So I, I kind of throw it to you too if there's anything you want to like really get in there. I mean that that was that was my thing was like there's there is no like next step 
that could be a problem for the band. <laughs> I don't think it would be. The because I remember hearing Addiction to Blood and thinking, I don't know how they could top that. And then I remember hearing Visions of Bodies being burned and thinking, okay, now this time for real, I don't know how they're gonna top this. And then I listened to Double Live, the live album that they recorded with Christopher Flieger on the Splendor and Misery tour around 2016 to 17. And it is an impossible live recording. Should I give a bit of like info for that or is that gonna Absolutely. be too far yeah, away? Yeah, go for it. The recording of the album was not exactly how you would usually do the sort of how how you'd usually record a live album. Instead of having microphones pointed at the band that you're storing these songs on, they were at the back of the rooms that they were performing in, and they were taped to security guards' vests. They were taped to trees outside. They were underneath the stage. They were in the toilets. <laughs> and so you have an album which only makes... It's... Hmm, it does stand alone as its own sound collage type work. It gets better when you have experience with their other songs, because you can hear parts of their songs coming through and then it will dissolve into ambient sound effects or you'll have parts of songs and they will dissolve into the sound of the venue from outside of the venue or it will you will have vocal lines by David fade away into security guards humming their own versions of the songs you have people giving instructions on how to tape the microphones up that are intercut with select words from David over top of it, over top of the normal, natural words that these people are speaking to each other, um, that is in no way connected to the music, it just fits somehow. You have some of the crew, you can hear, this, I forget which track it is in particular, because it's not an album you'd go to to listen to individual tracks in the same way that I feel with this album, I don't sit down and pick out individual tracks, I listen to the entire piece as one constantly evolving, constantly shifting piece of music. So I can't recall the exact track, but you can hear the sound of tape being pulled out, and then the microphone getting taped up to the tree, and then you hear people stand back and take a look at it, and you have one guy in the background going, that's never gonna work. <laughs> there is one track which is just full of noises they recorded from the bathroom and it is very funny they pressed that to wax there is four minutes of burp and fart and vomiting noises in the middle of my clipping album and i am all here for it <laughs> there's also one song where hmm, this is a bit more of a tangent one of their tracks from their first album get up samples an alarm clock going off and then that alarm clock become, becomes the beat. They decontextualize the sound of an alarm clock as part of the rhythm of the song. And then there is a recording inside someone's motel room, I guess, where you can hear the alarm clock start to go off and you hear the... it sounds like it's about to go into the beat of the song and then someone turns it off. They decontextualize an alarm clock to make a beat for a previous song and then they recontextualize that decontextualized alarm clock for this song, and it only makes sense if you've heard these two songs together, if you have that experience. But it is funny. It is... Inc despite not having a lot of 
songs on the record and a lot of the vocals have been stripped out or processed in a way that is more cerebral than a visceral like body sort of feeling it still manages to have a lot of it's probably the funniest record that they've ever made even though it is so sparse um, it's still got a lot of personality despite a lot of the songs not actually existing in the way that you would expect to hear them from a live album i ramble on about double live i guess i'm rambling about double live a little bit but in terms of seeing where they could go from here, I don't see whatever the next project... I don't, I don't look to the next project and expect it's going to be a step up. I expect it's going to be a step in a different direction. And that's something I really appreciate about this group, is that even though even though I don't go back to all their albums equally, I'm, I definitely go back to these two albums, particularly Bodies Being Burned, more so than any of their other records. They are still following their own aesthetic vision they still have their own goals in mind for what they want to do and they are following those goals and i'm here for it i'm excited for whatever they're going to do, going to do next because it's probably not going to have anything to do with what they've been doing previously or i assume it will work on it will build up from the same groundwork but it won't be something i expect and I think that's really exciting to have a group that is active and still producing music and is unpredictable in that in that way. I'm gonna be real with you. I think that's kind of a perfect way to end this. Unless I'm gonna get, you know, a barrage of no. I have more to say. Um, <laughs> no. I'm, I have more to say. <laughs> I'm I'm keen to talk about a few tracks. I'm keen to talk about pain every day and enlacing and. Because I think Enlacing is the biggest left turn this album takes. I don't... I'm, I'm not super familiar with Trap, so I'm not... Maybe maybe this is something that I'll get, like, slammed down, but... Enlacing feels like a bit of a musical left turn by veering off into Trap outright, which I don't feel like they have really touched on with these two albums, or much of their other catalogue. Maybe Wriggle? But that's still doing its own thing. Yeah, no, I don't. When I when I think of clipping, trap is not the first thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> it's really quite serene, and it's the last musical song on the album because immediately following this, we have Secret Peace, which is more of an ambient piece. It is Secret Peace. I haven't been like. It is Secret Peace. Thank God, because if I've been saying this the whole time and no one's corrected me, it would be very funny, and I would look very dumb. It's quite a not a serene way to end the album. It does feel very peaceful compared to the other songs on these two records. But there is an air of... It does have an edge of finality to it that makes it feel a little uncomfortable, even though it's not overtly pushing or it's not overtly trying to... It's not abrasive compared to their other works. It is not... The production of the song isn't especially debilitating or disorienting compared to their other works or specifically other songs from this album. Lyrically, I feel like it's bordering on Lovecraftian forms of horror. It's very psychedelic. It's very... I want to say washed out, but it's not washed out. It's just like... Because lyrically it's talking about what happens after the end, and just like going through the processes of 
dying effectively or recognizing that things are fucked in an irreconcilable way and there's nothing that you can really do about that so you have little lines like how you looking at your face when your face is on your face this is something you should face you should fuck this song slap though it, it cuts in and interjects <laughs> and whatever the train of thought was he's saying oh well something is very clearly wrong but there's not really much we can do about this so we're just going to exist in the space and we're going to kind of vibe out for a few minutes and it's kind of jarring with how peaceful it is or how blissful it is compared to the rest of the album it makes sense to have that kind of level of finality to it because it is you know it's on the back end of the second part of this two-piece uh, pair of albums and it is kind of like it's closing <coughs> off this chapter for clipping hmm. yeah i do want to bring up pain every day and invocation in particular um i feel like personally pain every day to me is the centerpiece of this record it's the most emotional i feel this record gets and i feel it's a very good counterpoint to blood of the fang from the previous record both of them were the third single released for the album and both are quite both songs lyrically focus on death a fair amount blood of, but where blood of the fang is empowering blood of the fang is a lot more empowering when it comes to the topic of death though lyrically it's saying lyrically the pers- character is put in the perspective of having all of these bullets whizzing past them and they're just jumping around moving out of the way and then at the end of it they look down still here now what that tell you about death death ain't shit and it's <laughs> almost like a call to arms especially in the video where he picks up this uh assault rifle and then starts chewing it because it's made out of jelly <laughs> i feel like we could do a whole episode just on the music videos for these two projects the music and lyric videos they're very worth checking out um in your own time i think it's also interesting that enlacing and pain every day end up in the same video together not the lyric video but the music video the section four enlacing has a few visual references to the video for all in your head um which again just gives the entire project these two albums a very tight sense of cohesiveness i think it's interesting that you have the last track focusing on things being wrong in a way that you can't really come back from and just enjoying your last moments effectively before pain every day which is much earlier in the track list um the track before pain every day invocation i think i've already mentioned has emp recordings um which supposedly capture specters from the beyond it's like this little electronic device and you pick up these little like wobbly woo 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 and those are those noises whatever they are are supposed to be the dead trying to speak to you or yeah ghosts from the beyond trying to communicate in some way and i think andy you mentioned that you weren't super fond of invocation i mean yeah uh, it's like the idea is fine I, I think the idea could have been really cool it's you know, just what it ends up being is just kind of like this single kind of swelling tone. And then you get like a little bit of variation. You get this kind of warbling. Um, and it kind of fades back out again and kind of comes back in again. Uh, but without that warbling and it's... 
it sounds like as a standalone track, it doesn't really do too much. Yeah, because, you know, there's the last interlude that we haven't actually talked about, which is Drove, which is my favourite interlude. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> which is outside of, you know, some factory farm mm. somewhere. And it's just, like, probably the, the unmitigated terror of existing within you know a f- factory farming mm. is probably unparalleled and all you know like here we, where we live we, you know, we can hear like sheep and you know we can hear cows but they don't have that kind of desperation you know well if you work out at one of the meatworks oh yeah <laughs> one of the one of the slaughterhouses a bit out into the country mm. I feel like as a standalone track, Invocation isn't anything especially special, especially considering all of the other interludes across these two projects. I feel like where it's placed in the album, and how it segues into Pain Every Day, retroactively gives it a little bit more weight, and a little bit more significance, that when listening through it the first time, I I had quite a similar reaction. I was thinking, okay, we've got this one tone, and it's getting higher, and higher oh my god there's a second tone and that's about it but it feels like pain every day is focusing on the perspective of those that have died and have passed away uh their experiences after life how they would try to make sense of the processes that people go through to grieve with lines like them altars and headstones they think all them flowers for smell nothing you just bones cry a little less every hour so that must be real nice crossing the earth it's quite dismissive to the humanistic perspective in that sense it is probably at least even even considering looking like me i feel like pain every day is the angriest album angriest album could you imagine i reckon i want a full album i want i want pain every day like the start of that and then a full album just spawning off the end of that much like how um say the name just sort of like goes along and Mm. builds and becomes this it's this rolling monolith i I want i want three minutes a song and 50 minutes of noise please i love the contrast of having unintelligible tones and invocation which i can't make sense of I don't know what that's supposed to communicate if those spectres are really trying to say something or if those spectres really exist. But following it up with a song which is speaking for the which is speaking for the people who can't speak for themselves anymore, I think gives it a little bit more weight. Especially by the time you get to the end, it the instrumental starts falling apart and you have these string arrangements come on you have these string arrangements rise up from underneath the mix trying to hold everything together while the song just breaks apart it feels like they're really trying to find some sense of semblance or stability or something to grapple onto and there isn't anything to grapple onto there's no peace for the people in the afterlife or no peace for those that have passed and i think when in the context of the real world systemic issues that are at the edges of the album and often bleed through into the songs themselves i feel like 
I feel like it's a very emotional tribute to the people who have passed because of the unjust systems in, pl in place. I feel like it captures the grief and the rage of the people who have passed really well, and at least for me, I feel like that's the track I come back to the most. It's definitely the one that stands out to me the most in this album. I'd say it's my favourite. Probably across both albums, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was trying to make a, a Lorax joke with, I am David and I speak for the dead, but I couldn't figure out the second <laughs> half of the line. <laughs> um, I don't Get really... your ass down to the floor. <laughs> I am David, I speak for the trees, and these trees are deceased. Oh, it's better than what I had, because I, I brought nothing to the table. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything to add, really. I mean, when we speak of finality, I mean, that is as final as you can get and you know conceptually it's it's as it's both as final as, as you can get quite literally but it's as final as the band can get artistically is to delve into speaking for those that can't and it's with that sense of finality that i think we're gonna we're gonna close this chapter much as clipping have closed this chapter in their careers we're closing this chapter and we're gonna we're, we're, we're gonna leave the the two albums there um there's a little bit more uh i won't i won't tease what but there's kind of a, a little a little bit more to this little project we've set ourselves I, I won't say what form that will take but there's a tiny bit left um so keep an eye out for that are we covering the clipping muppets crossover episode yeah we're, we're covering um we're covering the Muppets visit the slaughterhouse. Awesome. It's a shame what they did to Miss Piggy. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Two enter, none leave. <laughs> it's unfortunate that they're all animals. They really shouldn't have visited the slaughterhouse when you think about it. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're going to leave that there. So we're going to close this one out here. We are haunting the studio. Tyler, Andy, and Jay. The, the usuals all apply find us we're on facebook and instagram um and you can also contact us at uh haunting the studio at gmail.com if if you have you know if you want to chat if you have album suggestions if you just want to talk music and horror you know get in touch um we do have a show discord hit us up to be allowed into that at the moment it's fairly open but we don't just have like an open invite free for all so if if you go out of your way to reach out to us, then you're, you're welcome to join us. I post about music all the time. It's not the most active, but I definitely post in there a lot. <laughs> and yeah, we're going to leave it there to the students who are coming back in February. When you when you're hearing this, get some, get some clipping into your in, into your start of year into your start of year playlist. Get there, get some clipping in there. And happy Black History Month. Yeah, yeah, that too. Happy Black History Month in, in, in the United States, but we'll make it here as well. Yeah. Also known as the shortest month of the year. Anyway, well, we're going to cap it out there, and uh, you'll hear from us again sooner rather than later.
find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.